This is, this is one of those moments, just for the record. Sweet. There's nothing more fun than technical adventures. Uh, as a guy who's been in ministry for many moons, I'm going to tell you a story that was funny. We, we put a remodel at the church I was working at in El Dorado because been there forever. And it wound up, the soundboard went up, not in flames, but there was smoke from the sound system during service one Sunday. And uh, I remember a <laughs> guy was starting to he's an old farmer. Jeff comes downstairs, he's like, hey, man, the soundboard's smoking. And I'm like, oh, what are we doing? And I'm running around like a chicken with my head cut off, thinking, okay, we can strip this out and get it there. It's going to be great. And Jeff's coming, he's like, oh, come on. They're either going to hear pastor or they're not. It's okay. You can just take the old one out because the smoke's getting bad. I'm like, oh, okay, sure, I carry it out. We do this remodel. It's great. Easter Sunday, we kick everything off. You'd imagine with a totally remodeled sanctuary sound system technology, everything's going to be great, right? No. It became a running joke that we got to spend as much time running from the stage to the sound booth, which was in our balcony back then on the second floor, that I wound up using that as a sermon illustration, talking about things happening on purpose. First service, it went off without a hitch. The minute, they, you know, I was like, oh, okay, hang on, I'll come up. They started the video and it played. Second service, it did not work. And so I literally had to sprint up there and back down. But when things don't go as planned, God still gets the glory he deserves, and more so. One thing I've learned through years of preaching, the message I think is a home run is probably a dud. And the message I think is a dud is probably going to be a home run. But this morning, we've got a peach of a passage. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture, and it actually has a deeply personal spot for me uh, this was the passage that Dr. Mark Wells preached on, or actually Pastor Glenn Holman, Dr. Wells did the service. Pastor Glenn Holman preached on this for our homily at our wedding. Um, so it carries a lot of deeper meaning. But I want to ask you a question this morning to start. This, this is one that you're going to have to think a little bit about. But if someone were to ask you, what is central to who you are, what would they say? If someone was asked, what is central to who Tyler is, what would they say? I mean, think about it. If that's you, what would people say makes you up? Would they talk about your family, your job, maybe your physical attributes? I've heard about that for years. My first nickname playing football was House. And then after that, because of where our middle school was located with a steakhouse literally just across from the practice field, man, I couldn't catch a ball to save my life. But all of a sudden, you heard Coach, Joff, just think about that as a big old T-Bone steak, man. Then my nickname became T-Bone. But those nicknames you're known by, maybe that matters. Or maybe it's your intellect, your personality. Now the question is, if someone were to say that about you, what is central to who you are? Would their answer be the same as yours? Because I think often... We have a different perception of ourselves than other people do. They see things that we don't see. In fact, there's a whole industry dedicated to figuring out who you are. And I, I promise some of you have probably taken these. It's a big thing in the leadership areas. Like, for example, there's the Enneagram, which for the record, I'm a one or a three somewhere in that ballpark, just in case you know. Or maybe it's the Myers-Briggs, and yes, I'm an ENTJ. But all those measures, what are they for? They're to help you try and figure out who you are. And we take those things so that we can better leverage our strengths to accomplish a goal. So whether that's corporately or on a football field, 
you're finding out about yourself so that you can succeed. Now, as you can tell from the logo, central and centrality, that's a word, I think I just made it up sometime, but hey, <clears throat> I don't think so. It really is a word, but I'd like to take credit for it one of these days, centrality. But everything revolves around Christ. Today's passage, we've been going through Acts, and you've seen what Paul has said. And Jay really kind of set me up. He didn't know it. But when you preach long and somebody falls out a window and dies during your sermon, you have to go back to it. Because if you remember through Acts, we've heard about Paul and the fact that, man, in person, he's kind of disappointing. In his letters, man, did you see that? And in person, Paul preaches so long, somebody goes to sleep. In his letters, you're like, oh my goodness, this guy's a genius. This morning is one of those passages, and you heard it. And in today's text, we're going to look at how Paul defines Jesus. Because from the get-go, in Colossians here, it should be clear that Jesus is central to everything. And if you want to check out now, that's the main point. Jesus is central to everything. There's not a single aspect of life, creation, in the universe that he is not central to. For example, take, take a moment there. How was time divided in many places? There's BC, which stands for before Christ, and AD, which is Anno Domini, not after death, just in case you didn't know that one. But time was divided by when Jesus came. Any historian worth an ounce of salt knows that Jesus was a historical person who made a massive seismic change in our world. I mean, just look at the things that have come about because of who Jesus was. Did you know most of medicine owes its roots back to the church? Why? Have you ever been in a big city? What, what's the hospital named for? There's the Baptist or the Methodist or the Presbyterian Hospital. Many hospitals started because the church saw a need. Orphanages, most of those started because of the church. In fact, in ancient Rome... You know what the church was known for? For saving the kids people put outside to die. The babies that no one wanted were left out to die of exposure. The early church picked them up, took them in, raised them as their own. And if not, they gave them an honorable burial. And they showed the value of that life. So many things point back to who Jesus is that he's central to everything. And in today's passage, if you get nothing else... If you don't hear anything else, remember that Jesus is central to everything. But the reason that's important matters more than you might think. Lots of people have lots of ideas about who Jesus is. In fact, remember, Jesus asked his own disciples a pretty easy question. Who do people say that I am? And how many answers did they have? <laughs> I mean, I think about what, what are the ones that didn't make the cut? I've always wondered if you could, you could sit inside the disciples sometime and hear the things they said, because we've all been parts of friend groups. There are all those things that come out and the stories that are told. But people thought a lot about who Jesus was then. Today, the opinions are even more varied. And so it's super important for us to know who Jesus is because it matters to our faith, our theology, and even our practice in living so much so that if we're wrong, it leads to horrible places. 
Because people have used Jesus for all kinds of things because they didn't actually know who he was. And we're just as guilty of being able to do that today as anyone else has. We can take Jesus and turn the God of the universe into a reason to justify whatever we want. If you don't believe me, just read some theological articles that are out there that have been published in the last two, three years. It's, it's a crazy world we live in. And people will use Jesus in his name to justify just about any position. So we're going to start and we're going to just dive in. And I want you to hold on because we're going to get into some heady theological waters here. And it's some fairly serious theology. It's serious because it's about the most important thing in all of the universe. Jesus Christ. So we'll start in verse 15. Verse 15 says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now this carries a ton of material in it with it. He's the image of the invisible God. That means that Jesus stood for, symbolized, represented, and manifested God himself. We know that because we believe that Jesus was God and man at once. There are a lot of heresies that came from that. Heck, we'll cover some of those as we walk, but people have a tendency to want to separate Jesus. There were people who said he was just spiritual. People who said he was just a human. People who said he was just a good teacher. But the truth is, Jesus was the image of the invisible God. Now first, understand, the word image like on a coin or something else, it represented and symbolized what the object pictured. That usage occurred often in context talking about coins or mirrors. Everyone there would have seen it. Paul would have said Jesus was the symbol of deity, is essentially what they're thinking if that is the primary usage of the word image, that Jesus exactly symbolized God. But that's not all Paul is saying. He's also bringing in the shade of manifestation. When that part of the Greek was employed, it meant that the symbol was more than a symbol, which should be familiar to us as the church, because Jesus gave of lots of symbols that are more than symbols, thinking particularly about the table that sits in front of us. It's more than just a symbol. But J.B. Phillips translated this part into the visible expression. It's not that he is the image of the invisible God. J.B. Phillips said he is the visible expression of God. Meaning that Jesus brought God into the human sphere of understanding. He manifested God. It's just like Hebrews 1.3, where the writer stated that Jesus is called the exact representation of God. In John 1.18, that said, Jesus has made him, that is God, known. The point is that in Christ, the invisible God became visible. He shared the same substance as God and made it so we could understand it. What you have to understand is that Jesus is central to our very capability to know God. Minus Jesus Christ, we would have nebulous ideas. Because think about it this way. Which is easier to understand? A concrete object that is in front of you, or an abstract philosophical idea. Science tells us it's a whole lot easier to understand the concrete and physical than the abstract metaphysical discussions that are detailed. I can tell you about God, I can tell you about Jesus, but when you see him for yourself, it changes everything. That's why I feel for Thomas. 
he gets such a bad rap, doubting Thomas. What if he didn't doubt the rest of the time, but just that one time, and Matt, you know? But he gets a bad rap because his question, if I see Jesus and I touch his wounds, I'll believe. And then did you notice what Jesus did in that passage in the New Testament? Jesus shows up in his first words. Don't be afraid. Oh, hey, Tom, come on, man. You know, check this out, my side, my hands. And Thomas believed. Scripture goes on to tell us that those who have not seen and believe have it harder. And that's the truth. We know that from science. And that's why Jesus, being the visible image of God, matters. He was a human being in flesh. And because of Christ, we can actually see God. You can see the invisible because of Jesus. You can know the invisible because of Jesus. That's a huge thing because it'd be really easy to fall into some temptations and troubles in this passage. In fact, one of the heresies people have taken from this is that because of what Paul is saying, it's a violation of the Old Testament commands not to make an image and worship it instead. And in fact, that was one of the charges that was brought against some of the church because they were worshiping an image of God, not God. But that's why it's important to see that Jesus wasn't just the image of God. He was God. That triune concept of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one, co-equal, separate, distinct. But together, co-equal in unity. We have to start there. And that's why I said we're getting into some serious theology. Because, heck, the second chunk of this passage, wait, we've only covered two, we haven't even covered a full sentence yet. The second sentence, the firstborn over all creation. I love the way the Christian Standard Bible translates that. Because, you know who came up with a heresy pertaining to the firstborn of all creation? This guy named Arius. You've all heard of Arius, real popular today, right? Which is a good thing he's not. That's actually... If you, if you, how many of you have heard of the Nicene Creed? We'll start there. You know what the Nicene Creed is? You know why the Nicene Creed exists? Because of this guy named Arius. Arius held that Jesus was the first created. In fact, his phrase, Jesus was the created creator. And he pushed that. And people went for it because think, it's first century. You don't have the internet. Heck, you don't even have a newspaper to publish. So you hear what people say. Arius made his stuff catchy. You know what he did? He actually wrote songs to contain his theological position. And in fact, we don't know that it's factual. It's held as non-factual. <laughs> but St. Nicholas is believed to have punched one of Arius' disciples, Bishop Eusebius, who was singing one of Arius' heretical songs in the Nicene Council. Not historically factual. It sounds a lot cooler to think that St. Nick... Knock the tar out of a heretic, man. Dovetails with what my friend Roddy in Texas told me. If you punch somebody in Jesus' name, it's got to be okay because it was in Jesus' name. Don't do that. I never told you to do that, kids. Mine especially. Don't. I didn't say that. But the Nicene Creed came from heresy, and it refined. One of the coolest things about church history is if you look at where we've come and where we've been, everything has refined and clarified. Everything started with a bunch of guys who'd been with Jesus, which that's seriously what I want is my epitaph. And they recognized him as a man who had been with Jesus. 
Save that for later. You can carve it on your headstone and thank me, which really is thanking Andy Addis because I stole it from him. But they were with Jesus. They saw him. They touched him. They ate with him. He was the God of the universe who had the power of everything. And he sat down on the beach and he ate baked fish. And he sweat and he bled. And he was everything we could ever have needed to see God. So remember, Jesus is central to us knowing God. You can't know God subtracting Jesus from the equation because he is everything. And that heresy came from the Apostles' Creed starting, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord. Not going to hit the rest. Fast forward, post Arius, in this one single sentence, the firstborn over all creation, taken out of context, I might add, Nicene, uh, the Nicene Council had to come up with, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. It's a much longer sentence, right? But do you see what they're doing? They're refining they're pointing and they are defining who Jesus is based on what we saw and what we knew. And see, the thing is, it's easy to make Jesus who we want him to be. But if we actually know the real Jesus, we know God. So the second thing I want you to see here, we're, we're moving on. Everything was created by him because Jesus is central to creation Everything's created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. And there are three phrases I'm going to camp on here as we look at this, because this is showing you the utter supremacy of Christ. I'm going to walk, actually, I'd leave the camera, I'll stay right here, and I'll point over there, there we go, because otherwise Carl's going to look at me with, with anger, nah, but... For everything was created by him. The word by him there. Everything was created by Jesus. That means practically that Jesus conceived of creation and its complexities. Creation was Jesus' idea. It's created by him. Okay? The second phrase to see there, move on down to the last sentence. All things have been created through him. So you get to through. It means creation came to be through Jesus' power and ability. He is also the effective or the active agent of creation. And the third phrase to see there, for him. Everything in creation was created for Jesus. The literal expression is unto him. Everything was created, and Jesus was the goal of that creation. Everything exists to display his glory, and ultimately he'll be glorified in all of his creation. Every single aspect of this universe was finely tuned by Jesus Christ. That is an amazing miracle, y'all. I mean, think about it this way. How many of you have scraped your hand and busted your knuckles or done something and not noticed it? Did you ever think about the sheer wonder that is the fact that you didn't bleed to death? Or better yet, that your body wasn't just randomly producing clots throughout your body? 
We know that there are so many different elements responsible for that simple act of a scab coming to be right there where you cut yourself. If one of them is missing, they have to substitute something else so that your body doesn't. Like you got blood thinners so that you're not making clots somewhere where it shouldn't be. They have clotting agents that help you make clots if you're not. And if you want to look it up, the blood clotting cascade is an amazing proof of a creator. Because you lose one piece of that system, any piece at all, and it doesn't work. You die. Jesus was not just the effective agent of creation. He was the envisioner. He's the artist. And here's one, don't get a big head, but let me tell you this. The God of the universe, our Jesus, he made those amazing mountains out in the Rockies. And he thought of you. Because you were the pinnacle of his creation. Don't get a big head. Okay, no, nobody go there. But as the pinnacle of creation, every mountain, every ocean, every inch of creation was made for you. Why? So that you would know and see Jesus who is central to creation. He made it all to show you his glory and so that he would be glorified. It's the supremacy of Christ in everything that this passage points to. Jesus is central to us knowing God. He's central to creation. Then the next one is that Jesus is central to the church, which you might be thinking, man, Matt, you sound like Jay. That's because it's in Scripture. And so I'm going to sound like Jay because he sounds like the Bible says too. Jesus is central to the church, which just for the record, right now you can annotate that point with the words, no duh, Matt, and you'd be right. Because I'm pretty sure none of us would doubt that Jesus is central to the church. There is no church without Jesus. But he is the head of the body, the church. Ask you a quick question. How much of your body does your head make up versus the rest? Anybody care to guess? Care to think? I mean, maybe if you're me, you have more body than head anyway. But you think about it this way. People are going to see the body, not just the head. The head determines direction. The head determines what you're going to do it guides everything. In fact, my medical professionals could tell you that your, your brain and the brain stem matter more than just about anything else. But without the body, it's not going to tell the hand to move. It's not going to tell the feet to walk. Or as my seminary professors told me, to tell your feet not to walk, Matt. Stay in one place. And here, here's a tip if you're ever preaching just imagine you're curling your toes around a stick and carrying it as you walk, and it's supposed to make you stay in one place more. Uh, if you couldn't tell, it didn't stick. But being the head of the church and being central to the church is the importance that Jesus sets the direction. He knits us together and unleashes us with the same power that rose Christ from the dead. Now, now take, take a moment and think about why it matters that Jesus is central to the church. The same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in you. Period. That's what Scripture says. And as the church, you've got a ton of people who have the exact same power that rose Christ from the dead living in them, working together for a common cause to show the world who Jesus is. That is the most glorious and amazing thing in the world. We are burdened with a glorious purpose of showing people the supremacy of Christ in all that we do. And that's why there is a church. 
The visible Jesus doesn't sit here with us today. I wish. I've always thought it'd be great if Jesus was just kicking it with me regularly and he could tell me, Matt, don't be stupid. Anybody else know that feeling? That's just me. I'm a horrible person. You deal with it. But he's not here. People don't see Jesus walking the earth. Who do they get to see? Go back to verse 15. It's the visual image that people see. Who do people see when they see Jesus today? The church. The people who are filled with the Holy Spirit who bear the name of Jesus Christ. So my question for you is this. You see why Jesus is central to what we do as the church. If we don't know him first and put him first, it's easy to go our own direction and to pull our own game. Well, this matters to me, so it should matter to you. Well, frankly, maybe it doesn't matter to me. But because we're part of the same body, we look at it. We figure out how it works together. And we run with it together. Because there is only one thing that matters to the church. It's that we are obeying and following the Lordship of Christ. He's our head. Think about it this way. If you're having spasms in your body, are you just going to say, oh, it's normal that my my arm just randomly shakes like this? It's okay. Or are you going to go see a doctor? If my arm just shook uncontrollably, I'm pretty sure I'd go see a doctor to figure out, hey, what in the world is going on? And there are things that can cause nerve issues and other symptoms. As the church, are we following the head in our desires? Or are we that body part that's just kind of shaking off over here doing our own thing? Because there is that only one mission that matters. And Jesus gave it right before he went back. Make disciples while you're going. Make disciples while you're teaching. Make disciples while you're baptizing them. Because did you know that in the Great Commission, there's only one actual verb? And it's about discipling. We read it, go therefore and make disciples. Teaching them to obey all I've commanded you and baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's just one stinking verb. It's about disciple. And so the mission of the church with Jesus as our head is to do what? Make disciples. Literally nothing else matters if we don't have that priority first. And that's because Jesus is the head. But I'm going to back up to a verse I didn't hit. If you notice, verse 17 kind of got short shrift. It's because it didn't fit thematically as I was rolling. But it does here. Jesus is before all things and by him all things hold together. I love that. Jesus is before all things, and by him all things hold together. Which, you could say that Jesus is literally the glue that holds everything together. Heck, he's better than J.B. Well duct tape and bailing wire, even if you could use them all for the same problem. The closest thing I could give you as an analogy of Jesus Christ is the strong nuclear force. It's the strongest thing we know of in nature, and in case you don't know, here's your science tip for the day. The strong nuclear force is what binds quarks into the more familiar things we know of as protons and neutrons. It's literally what holds everything together. Because at the core of who we are, we're just atoms floating through space with life in our lungs. What holds that together? Jesus Christ and nothing else. What Paul's saying, he says, you know, Jesus is the thing that holds together every single piece of created matter. 
He just didn't know he was talking about the strong nuclear force yet. I'm telling you. It'll blow your mind when you look at what God created to show us who he is. And it's about his glory. And as the church, he's the only thing that holds together disparate peoples, disparate passions, into one united body, accomplishing the only mission that matters in making disciples. So hopefully you're seeing where all this is going and the significance of this whole passage to our lives. Because if Jesus is central to the universe itself, he's central to our lives, he's central to creation and the church, the last thing you need to know is that Jesus isn't just central to the gospel. He is the gospel. And that's where Paul hits. And he hits hard. As you notice the tail end of this passage, and I hit the wrong button, there we are. At the tail end of this passage, you'll notice... He talks about it. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. You see that Jesus isn't just part of. He is the gospel itself. Because as we've sung this morning and now as we read it, Jesus' blood shed on the cross brought reconciliation. And we're very tempted to say that only applies to humanity. But the deeper truth, Jesus came to reconcile all of his creation to himself. Do you ever notice in the fall, it wasn't just about Adam and Eve. It wasn't just about the snake. The curse affected every inch of this created order. Everything God had made perfect through Christ, by Christ, and for Christ was cursed. Because of what we did as human. I wasn't there. I mean, I'd like to jack slap Adam one of these days for, dude, you were sitting there while she picked the apple. Couldn't you say a word? There's lots of those moments. There are lots of people I'd like to go back in time and say, what were you doing? But I'm pretty sure the problem is I'd make the same choice because I am just as human as they were. I'd like to think my hindsight means something, but the problem is hindsight only comes after the fact. But the gospel centrality is Jesus and Jesus alone. He came to reconcile everything. That's all of creation all peoples, all tribes, all languages, all tongues. He came for everything. And he suffered and he died on a cross to pay the price. You see that? He made peace through his blood. The shedding of blood was central to justice in much of the Old Testament world. In fact, we've all heard an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? You've heard that, that phrase? It was that shedding of blood or the payment of an equal price. And what we have, the whole concept of substitutionary atonement, is that Jesus Christ took your place. He didn't come to stand in your place. Understand, semantics matter here. Jesus didn't just come to stand in your place. He came to take your place. The entire punishment of your sin rests on Jesus' shoulders on the cross. It wasn't just your sin was given to him temporarily. 
He bore the punishment and the pain for everything we've ever done. Every single human through time and space, Jesus bore our sin by literally taking our place and bearing the wrath. Romans tells us the wages of sin is death. And what did Jesus do? He took the payment for our work. And it was gruesome and ugly and horrific. He took that payment for our work of sin so that we could have life. As Paul tells us in Corinthians, God made Jesus who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we would be the righteousness of God. Jesus took your place. He stood there, he suffered, and he bore the sentence for your sin. And he paid with his very life and his blood shed on that cross so that you did not have to pay the price for your sin. That is why the gospel is good news, church. We do it a disservice when we make it about what we do and what we don't do. The gospel is the news that you have been redeemed. You were bought at a price and you are not your own. We never see that. We don't live that on a regular basis. We don't revel in the glory. I mean, think about it. When's the last time you just thought, man, Jesus is so amazing. I can't get enough. I don't know about you. I've been following Christ for a long time. That means there's ups, there's downs, there's way downs, there's in-betweens. But the centrality of Christ is something that matters to us because if he is central to creation, if he is central to the church, if he is central to everything, the question I have to ask, is he central to our lives? Because the centrality of Jesus requires an all-or-nothing commitment. In Revelation, you read about the church in Laodicea. It says, I'd rather have you hot or cold instead of lukewarm. Jesus didn't come for just enough. Jesus didn't come to just say, eh, it's okay. He also didn't come to sit in the sky with a lightning bolt and to wait to punish you. Both of those are equally far out and horrible ideas. The centrality of Christ is that he is who he said he was, and he showed that in the way he lived, in the way he loved, in the way that he died, and in the way that he came back. And what Scripture tells us is that if we have shared in his death, we will surely share in his life and the resurrection. Now, the thing is, life isn't a decision you make part way. Because for the record, y'all, you're either alive or you're dead. There's, there's not an in-between ground. Either your heart is beating and you're breathing, or you're not. And the commitment Jesus asks for is everything about us. In church, that's hard. Because if we don't see the goodness, the greatness and the centrality of Christ. Our decision often isn't all, and it's not nothing, but it's, well, kind of. In fact, the joke in the Baptist circles where I was ordained was the last part of your body to ever go under the water was your right hand holding the wallet up. 
That's why you had to hold them until they bubbled a little bit, so that part would fall under and get baptized too. And that's a joke, but we often have parts of our lives that we're going to hold back because I know better. But as you saw on the graphic, RJ, can you kick it to the main logo there with the, the engine-y looking thing? When I put that together, that's a ton of gears. And finding ones that all sorted took for stinking ever. But all of those work together and should, in theory, move. And they move together and they would rotate. But if you take one away, do you know what would happen? The whole thing would quit. The whole thing would just stop. You wouldn't be able to move it. And that's like, how many of you know what a Rube Goldberg machine is, right? You've got that enormously complex machine that's going to put toothpaste on your toothbrush. And you know, it goes through all those steps, the bowling ball down the ramp to here to there. They're a lot of fun to watch. But you know what happens if one step fails? The whole thing dies. When we look at Jesus Christ and what he's called us to, it's all of us. Because here's the deal. If your sin was paid in full by Christ, why would you want to hang on to some of it? Because here, here's the truth. I do. Hi, my name's Matt. I'm a sinner. I'm a pretty horrible person on a regular basis. You can ask my kids. They know. The good news is this, church. Bad and as horrible as I can be, Jesus is greater. As horrible as my sin has been, Jesus' payment was greater. No matter what I've done or do, Jesus is greater. In fact, I could even talk about it all day. There's a hymn that talks about worthy ocean ink. You couldn't write enough words about the grace of Jesus. Because Jesus is central to everything. And my question to you this morning, church, is Jesus central to your life? He didn't come to be an add-on. He didn't come to be an accessory you added to make it work. He came to be the only way your life could work. And that is why the gospel is good news. So this morning, my question is, do you know the real Jesus? Do you know the supremacy of Christ that surpasses everything, that holds everything together, and will never leave you alone? Have you been captivated by his glory and the fact that everything works together the exact way he designed. The fact that you're breathing in here this morning is testament to his goodness and his grace. So my question, do you know him? If not, what's holding you back? Because you've heard the gospel. Jesus in your place. All that's left is the sacrifice where you give yourself and while it seems hard, Jesus has so much more to give than you can ever imagine. Because he is life. He is light. He is truth. He is the definition of goodness. And minus that, it is a dark, dismal place in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you gave us your son the creator of our universe, the artist who put it all together, and that in him we could have life, that he would pay for our sin, 
and take our very place. This morning we ask that you would forgive us for all the myriad ways we've failed. May your blood shed on the cross cover us so that instead of seeing our sin, instead of seeing the things that we have done, the people would see you and the centrality of you to our life. This morning, give us the strength to stand with all we have for your kingdom and your renown and your glory is the desire of our hearts. Mold us and shape us into your image so that as your church, people would see you. We ask all of this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.